Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hello, hello. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so good to see you today. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining me. Today's episode is excellent, I really must say. We are joined by Wanjika Gatheru Wawa. Wawa is an environmental justice scholar passionate about empowering BIPOC communities in the environmental decision-making process. She's a recent alum of the University of Connecticut And she graduated magna cum laude in environmental studies and a minor in urban and community studies. Plus, she's UConn's first Rhodes Scholar, so she is set to attend Oxford University in the fall. In fact, by the looks of the archives, Wawa is the first Black person to receive the Rhodes, Truman, and Udall scholarships. She's a big deal. I first connected with Wawa after reading her article in Vice, which we allude to a couple of times in today's conversation. Her article was published a little over a month ago in June and titled, It's Time for Environmental Studies to Own Up to Erasing Black People. If you have not read it, I highly recommend you look up this article, put in Google Wawa Vice, and you will find it. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. A little abstract from the article. Many aspects of environmental scholarship are inaccessible to Black students, including textbooks that don't acknowledge our history and fieldwork requirements that are ignorant of Black criminalization in the outdoors. Last week, Wawa had a piece published on Glamour.com titled, Want to be an Environmentalist? Start with Anti-Racism. This article had a couple of lines in it that honestly gave me chills. She is so well-spoken, so eloquent, such a high-level thinker not only when it comes to the environmental conversation and the social justice conversation, but just in the way that she understands people and societies and motivations. Before we recorded this episode, we had spoken before really at length, and we vibe so well. Wawa and I have really gotten along, and I so appreciate that because she's opened my eyes so much to so many injustices that are built into a lot of these systems that I love. I love the outdoors. I love outdoor recreation, environmental studies, and these are things that I advocate for and I encourage people to learn about, even if it's not their primary passion. And we cannot have the environmental conversation without having the social justice conversation. 
in the past, I've had a couple of episodes that touch on equity, social equity. So I'll link some of those in the show notes if you want to go back and catch up or learn about something a little bit new that maybe you haven't thought about before. But when we talk about climate justice and social justice, we can't really talk about appreciating the outdoors without understanding how different groups of people are interacting with those experiences. And when I say different groups of people, I want to preface this by saying that I am a white Hispanic woman. I've benefited from white privilege my entire life. And while this is not a conversation about me in any capacity, I think it's important to have that just in the back of your head because my Hispanic culture and my white privilege does inform the way that I experience a lot of these spaces and the way that I've received information in the past. So it inherently just helps me formulate my questions, my own experiences. So again, not that this has anything to do with me, but when you are having conversations about race and equity and social justice, your own privilege inherently informs you about how you should be perceiving the situations. So that's that on that. I really do look forward to hearing your thoughts on today's conversation because, again, it was one that really touched me and opened my eyes and informed me in a lot of ways that I didn't know I needed to be informed. You know, I think that a lot of us out there believe we're so conscious and we're so aware and we're so woke to all of these issues going on around us. But as the Black Lives Matter movement has really cemented itself as more of a conversation and a cornerstone in a lot of these spaces, it is more important than ever to keep the conversation alive. And again, for that reason, I am so thankful to be sharing this conversation with Wawa and I'm so glad that she was able to join us because... Again, she's brilliant, and I really look forward to diving deeper into this conversation with her. We discuss racism and social justice in conservation and also in experiencing outdoor recreation. We talk about the whitewashing of environmental studies and environmental history. We also get into unpaid internships and tokenism, especially when it comes to making these big nature-focused organizations more diverse. We get into generational trauma and the violence of Black folk and the criminalization that Black folk are experiencing today. We talk about accessibility for non-white students in the outdoors, to the outdoors, and we close off our conversation with the concept of colorism. We talk about the outdoor experience and how self-love and beauty standards really do play a role in the outdoor experience, particularly for Black women. And dig this, we're going to dive deeper in a separate episode coming up on Friday when we talk about the Black experience and beauty standards, particularly in the outdoor conversation. So we unpack a lot in this episode, and I look forward to sharing it with you. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. And you can share your thoughts with me on Instagram at EcoChicPodcast. That's the easiest way to get in touch. You can also follow along on Facebook and Twitter, and all of my links are always in the show notes. I will also link Wawa's two articles that I just mentioned in the show notes as well if you'd like easy access to them while you're on your phone. If you're new around here, make sure you are subscribed to EcoChic wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts, and you can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy this episode. And I'd also like to take this quick opportunity to encourage everyone to request their mail-in ballots. The election is coming up in less than three months. This is your opportunity to genuinely make an impact. Only 61% of registered voters actually cast a ballot in 2016, and that is not a stat that flies with me. So if you're listening to this podcast, do yourself a favor, make sure you're registered to vote, and please request an absentee ballot or a mail-in voting ballot. 
All right, with that, let's jump into our conversation today with Wanjika Gatheru-Wawa on racism and social justice in conservation, the outdoor experience, whitewashing, unpaid internships, tokenism, everything of the sort. I hope you enjoy. Wawa, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here and just be jumping right into this conversation with you today. First of all, how are you doing? How are things? I'm doing all right. I'm so excited to talk to you. And um, we just fly so well. So I feel like this conversation is going to be really, really fun. Great. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited for it. And before we get into like too deep of a scholarship conversation, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey to environmentalism and this understanding that you came to have about the whitewashing going on in environmentalism. Like, how did you come to that realization? What was really going on in your life that forced you to reevaluate the social issues in the environmental world? Absolutely. So I got to the movement in a way that I have always characterized as being untraditional. But as I've gotten older, I realized how traditional it actually is for a lot of other uh, BIPOC environmentalists, and specifically Black women in the field. So I actually grew up surrounded by quote-unquote wilderness, as people usually define it. I grew up in the quiet corner of Connecticut in the last forested or largely forested area of the state. And even though I grew up right down the street from the Audubon Center, even though birding and hiking and all these outside activities were really accessible to me physically, I never really related to any of that stuff because in my household, when we talked about environmentalism, it was always discussed as this really top shelf, white-centric issue that only white people that were really rich engaged in, and that wasn't me. So I never really saw myself as an environmentalist. The first time when BLM really, really hit the mainstream um, after the murders of Eric Garner and and Trayvon Martin, that was when I really got radicalized in regards to social justice. And I realized that social justice was something so central to how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. And it just so happened that right around that time in my junior year, I took an environmental science class. And my teacher at the time added an environmental justice section, which actually wasn't a part of the curriculum. And that was the first time that I was able to make those connections between social justice, race, class, gender, and the way that we experience the environment. That was the first time that I realized that environmental racism was a prevalent issue in the very same communities that we were talking about in regards to um, the school to prison pipelines, in regards to talking about mass incarceration and police violence. And I started making these connections and it was really frustrating to me that I was having this huge aha moment of connecting my livelihood and my community's livelihood to these issues that were already being talked about, but they weren't being connected as environmental ones. So I decided to make my college career kind of trying to figure out why. I think that's a really impactful story because like you were saying, it's something that It seems like a lot of people have similar coming of age understandings of social justice in the environmental space, but you think it's so unique to you because it's your experience. You're like, oh, wow, am I the only person that feels like wilderness is so unattainable or hiking is an unattainable rich person, white person thing or whatever it may be. And it's really a cultural understanding of what the outdoors is and a cultural 
disdain almost for participating in those quote unquote, like white rich activities of going outside and bird watching and whatever else it might be. So I would love to talk to you a little bit also about culture and just the cultural understanding of some of these environmental spaces. What is the relationship in your community and the environmental world? Yeah, that's something that I ask myself a lot because within the United States, right, there's this general erasure of Black history. And what comes with that is there's this erasure of why many folks in my community have certain feelings of disdain or or may not want to participate in conventional environmental activities. And I can say from my own ancestry as someone who also is a Black immigrant, so my parents aren't from this country and my ancestry um, is very new in regards to having a geographic connection to the states. For me, it's been confusing in a way that I never really saw myself as an environmentalist until I was maybe 1920. proudly claim that it's always been confusing to me in learning that my family has been farmers for for time immemorial. My family for the first time ever has not been engaging in um, agriculture and moving to the states. So I never understood how my ancestry has been so tied to the land, yet I haven't really felt as though that was a valid experience in the outdoors. And I think something that also needs to be said is a lot of times, say, in regards to my family, when you are engaging in agriculture and farming for for so long, and you aspire to, say, go to the United States and get access to education to break free of this cycle of poverty, right? A lot of times that then places those activities within an aggressive mindset of, okay, Being outdoors is something that we had to do as survival for this amount of time. Now that we have new opportunities, why would you, as my child that now has this opportunity to get a degree and work in an office, why would you then choose to spend your free time or even have your job in the outdoors? We left, so you would have to do that. And I can speak in regards to that experience as a Black immigrant, but there's also the additional layer of the fact that when we're talking about the expansiveness of the Black community, there are a lot of Black folks in the States that are descendants of slaves, right? And that history in regards to the outdoors and the experience and relationship with the land as being one of subjugation and one of recognizing that as subjugation, as well as the woods as being a refuge in regards to running away from enslavement and being this place of violence in regards to having to hide out um, in fear of being caught in whatever might have been waiting for them back on said plantation. So there's a lot of, I say, generational trauma that exists at various angles of the diaspora um, and oftentimes due to colonialism and white supremacy. So I think it's really important for when people when people recognize that there is a lack of representation of Black folks in quote-unquote conventional or mainstream environmental activities, there's often a historic reason that shows up in how we experience those things contemporarily. But also beyond that, it's the fact that we experience the environment and define our spaces differently, right? Wilderness and nature isn't just this racialized conception that was created by the white founding fathers, it's actually more than that. And beyond culture, it's also supposed to be a place of safety. Wow, I am almost brought to tears. That is a really impactful 
package to deliver that experience in because when you're associating things like trauma, like refuge with the outdoors, it makes sense that you wouldn't want your children and your grandchildren to be taking such solace in these places. And I also think it's interesting that you brought up the idea of this white founding father's mentality around the outdoors, because when I think about that image of just the old white founding father man of the outdoors, I also associate that with just men in corporations, men that are running the economy. And when you're thinking about these spaces that have not traditionally been welcome to people of color, people of marginalized backgrounds, to women, to a lot of to, to a lot of groups that do not conform to that white founding father mentality, a lot of the time that does lead to these environmental organizations and these nonprofits and these more environmental recreational businesses. And I would love to hear a little bit about your experience working and interning in some of these organizations and the experience you had, not necessarily, I hate the word token, but it, it kind of was that way. Was it not? Did you feel, did you feel a little tokenized? Did you feel as though you had this responsibility to be the voice of the black community in these environmental organizations? Like what was that like for you? Yeah, and I first I do want to say thank you so much for making that connection and framing that question in regards to how the the founding fathers and their mindsets and the way that they conceptualized what natures were worth protecting and what nature even was, how that mindset and how those definitions actually continue to inform the environmental movement and who is prioritized, who's funded, that's a huge part that's left out in regards to contemporarily, like what programs and initiatives are centered. But I'd say because of that, and in regards to this reckoning that's happening right now and connecting Black Lives Matter um, with um, environmentalism and reckoning that I see happen in the environmental sphere, I feel like every three years people are saying, oh my goodness, climate justice is racial justice, so what do we do about this? And kind of get stuck there. When, at least in my experience, in, in realizing that and framing that and saying that outright, when people in the space feel as though they're stuck, they often turn towards the people of color. They turn towards the black people. A lot of times they turn towards the black women and ask, hey, so we know this is connected. You know, racial justice is environmental justice, is climate justice. Okay, so what do we do? So then what you end up finding is that a lot of times, um, a lot of people of color, in my experience, and even talking to a lot of my peers is that, we end up being informal DEI consultants, um, consulting organizations on how to move forward. And I've even been in that position as an intern. So as an intern that has, was hired as a sustainability intern, like every other intern there, supposed to do pretty elementary work of really understanding how the workplace goes, I'm formulating statements that are being passed down by the organization's president or university's president. I'm writing a diversity mission statement. I'm trying to figure out how to integrate DEI into um, hiring processes as an intern. And this is a problem that happens at every level where people are kind of expected to bring that perspective. And it's really, really frustrating, I feel as though, because on one end, there is the very, very real and tangible, um, you know, 
issue of the lack of compensation of having to put forth all this additional work that isn't just additional work for the sake of additional work, but all this emotional labor into this and being uncompensated for it and expected to do it uh, without recognition of all that additional labor. But also the fact that a lot of times and something that I found is if I don't do it, I feel guilty, not just because I have someone of authority asking me to do it, but because I know that if they actually were to implement these things, it can not only make the work environment more uh, accessible to me, but for other people. So that is kind of the mindset that I have been in and so many other people have been in and then turns into this really toxic um, bind that we find ourselves in. And we don't really know, or at least I have felt like sometimes I don't know how to get out of it and I end up burning out. <laughs> and not even feeling comfortable explicitly talking about why I'm burnt out because that I'm back at these two issues that I wasn't able to address at the beginning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I understand what you're saying because it gets to a point where you have to say, if I'm not talking about these social issues or these community level issues that I'm experiencing on a personal level, am I doing a disservice to my community? Am I taking advantage of the fact that I got to be in this space and I'm not paving the way for other people. So I think that kind of cultural guilt is very real because I hear it in the Hispanic community a lot too. And a lot of spaces, it's like, well, why aren't you more vocal about immigration or the issues surrounding refugees from other countries? Because you at one point were also an immigrant and you at one point were also a refugee. And if you're not vocal about it, you're not using your privilege in the right way. And I think that also the idea of a sustainability intern being put in the position to talk about inclusion and diversity is also really interesting as we talk about things like diversity on corporate boards too, more and more when we're talking about corporations and brands being asked how much of your corporate board of your C-suite is made up of people of color, of women, of people who are not the white founding father. And a lot of organizations don't really have a way to answer the fact that there's really not that many other people in the room. And we also are seeing this conversation around why is it that people of color in high levels or high levels of administration are always the diversity person? Like, why does it have to be that that's the job at the top of the totem pole for people of color, for Hispanic people, for BIPOC folk? Why does it have to be that way? And I think breaking that glass ceiling is really important as well, because using your privileged to bring up the people around you is incredibly important, but it's also being able to say, I'm stepping back from only speaking about my culture and only speak about my diversity and coming to this internship to do what I came to do and to learn about something and to accomplish assignments that don't necessarily have to do with culture. So I have to imagine that that like identity boundary, so to speak, is difficult to navigate. It's when do you, like, when do you turn it off? Can you really turn it off? Is there ever a point where you can say, I'm going to stop talking about the social issues in this space. Exactly. And I think what ends up happening is I, um, there is this hashtag that was going around on Twitter called um, Black in the Ivory, I believe. And it was talking about what it's like to be a Black person in higher education. And shout out the person, uh, Dr. Davis, who actually created that hashtag is um, a UConn professor that I know. So she's incredible. But um, 
one of the stories that I read that just you talking about that, that just came up in my mind was one of the women that posted her story. She talked about this experience of one of her first days in um, of her PhD. She was meeting other folks from different um, departments that also were going to their first year at some happy hour. And this guy asked where her interest was and she told him and it wasn't, um, an ethnic studies um, program that she was associated with. And he was like, oh, thank goodness, you know, your people always only study race. And I read that and I was like, wow, is that what people <laughs> are thinking about us in regards to the fact that, especially for people of color in higher education or in regards to being the only folks that you find on boards or on in senior positions, you also, tend to find us being siloed into diversity jobs. And it's interesting because I feel as though this perspective was that we're always choosing that. When oftentimes, right, when I'm talking about, it's interesting because some people are like, wow, 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 you're so great about talking about race and the environment. I'm like, well, I am simply telling you my experience. It's the fact that my experience isn't mainstream and isn't conventional that you're actually siloing me as being a diversity person. If you were underrepresented in this field, you also would be associated with this, but that's not the case. Your, your livelihood, your narrative is centered in this movement, which is why then you're able to study whatever you want with your narrative already centered. So I can't even begin to quote unquote study what I want and simply pursue my career based off of pure curiosity because I can't get there until my narrative is even visible, let alone centered. Absolutely. That is so powerful to say that if your narrative is not centered, you can't really get to where you want to go. And I would love to hear a little bit about the environment that you're seeing right now in these more corporate spaces, in these environmental organizations, as someone who is now speaking very actively about social justice issues and about climate justice being social justice, absolutely. Do you feel as though the narrative is changing? Do you feel as though people are waking up and what can we really expect from these organizations moving forward? I can't answer that. 100% right now. <laughs> That's a huge question. That's a huge question. So I'm sorry to dump that on you. Something that I think about a lot. There is a lot to be done. And it's a lot to say, okay, you as a large outdoor recreational brand has to do better. And it's like, okay, well, that really has to start at the ground level. And that has to be you completely revamping the way that you see the environmental movement and who you believe your audience to be or your customers to be. And how people interact with the outdoors, that has to fundamentally change like on a societal level. So to see the outdoor recreation industry or environmental organizations or conservation organizations waking up and saying we have to do better, that's asking a lot. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because um, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it in, from a branding perspective, but I did see something on Twitter like a week ago and it was like a funny meme of, brands before BLM hit the mainstream and it was like a variety of different white emojis um, to represent like the models and then after it's just like a variety of like brown faces and I went back on several brands I won't say which ones just to actually see and I've, I've seen that and you know it's interesting because 
I, I, I said in my article specifically that there's a lot of virtue signaling right now and that the statements that have been coming out of I hear you, I see you, haven't been doing it for me. And it's not in the fact that right now I can necessarily distinguish which organizations are engaging virtue signaling and which ones are actually going to be creating long-term change. It's just the fact that I'm informed by the variety of different times that every time some sort of justice related issue hits the mainstream, it seems like the environmental community amongst all the different communities tend to put out these statements and maybe for a week or two post content that is specifically addressing those things and then slowly wean off. I haven't necessarily seen that wean off happen in this moment, which I hope isn't a moment, but it's just very difficult for me to think of what um, is, is going to be done in the long term, because also I have the perspective as someone who just graduated. And though I'm, fingers crossed, going to be in Oxford this fall, I have been spending a lot of my time trying to support my other BIPOC um, recent environmental graduates in the job search. And I have been really, really enthralled in that process. And I've just been seeing that there hasn't been a lot done in regards to funding or some sort of hiring um, adaptations that prioritize hiring a lot of these emerging leaders that have a lot of the times helped create this conversation of why we should be centering Black lives, BIPOC lives in the environmental movement. So for me, I feel as though there's no such thing as an organization talking about environmental justice and being racial justice, XYZ, if you're not fixing, fixing your hiring processes. Because the reason why you're stagnant right now and trying to figure out how to address these things and how to support underrepresented communities is the fact that members of those communities aren't representing your staff and therefore don't have a voice at your table. So in order to actually integrate that in authentically, you need to dismantle the barriers that keep people from getting there. And honestly, one of the only organizations that I've seen actively create a new program or expand an existing program has been the National Wildlife Federation because they just changed, adapted one of their fellowship programs to actually support biologists of color. And I haven't seen many other big green organizations talk about similar commitments actually putting money where their mouth is. And that's what I'm looking for because Right now, you have so many talented, young, BIPOC, environmental, early career professionals that are looking for an opportunity to integrate EJ just in their work, regardless of their DEI-centered or biologists or zoologists and know how to integrate that into their work cohesively, but have nowhere to go. Well, and that's also reminding me, the last time we spoke, we talked briefly about the problem with unpaid internships and the fact that a lot of people who are cycling through these organizations and taking advantage of getting paid an experience and things like that, like it's an unpaid internship because you can afford to take an unpaid internship. And there are plenty of educated, ready to go people who want to contribute to this field of conservation and environmental science and a field that is very largely underfunded compared to things like business. These experiences are are inherently just being handed, not handed, but you know what I mean? They're inherently circled through these circles of just white privilege again and again. And that's why you continue to have these people at the top of the organizations, at the top of the food chain when it comes to the environmental conversation. So you also have to be thinking about 
accurately paying your interns and accurately paying your BIPOC community that is educating you just because you don't have someone and that's not fair and paying people accurately for their contributions to your organization. I have a lot of distaste for the idea of not paying people for the work that you are demanding of them and the problems with paying people at experience because that's not payment. Experience doesn't pay your bills. So at the end of the day, I think there's so much work to be done really even at the intern level to truly diversify conservation, quote unquote. I I, I truly don't believe that you can be engaging in any anti-racism work without having a budget line. Because if you're trying to implement a new thing within within the fabric of your organization, within the fabric of a movement, you can't do that with empty pockets. Now, I do understand that we're in a very specific time in history that is really unprecedented. That said, I do believe in regards to prioritization, there has to be funding that's associated with doing this work because without it, if you want to accomplish this, you simply can't be turning to your Huck and Brown colleagues to do this work unpaid or trying to entice um, young BIPOC people into your organizations by doing unpaid internships and doing all this work because something that also goes unsaid is the fact that there are very, very huge um, implications of obviously of not paying interns, but specifically not paying for DEI related work. And this is something that I am still grappling with because for, I would say, honestly, I had no idea that the work that I was doing for free and being a DEI consultant for organizations I know, organizations I don't know, as an intern unpaid, I had no idea that people can get compensated for this work, that my work is valuable. And no one told me that because my mindset was, well, I'm gaining a repertoire. Maybe I'm getting people that can trust me and later on they'll pay me for doing the same work. as I've grown and gotten to know other BIPOC folks in this field that are also doing this work, I'm learning that that people are getting paid and that oftentimes I have to be the one to demand that because oftentimes, because a lot of us don't have experience in these realms, we don't know that we can get paid for this work. And it's really unfair that people that are oftentimes taking advantage, I think, of people that just want to change the movement for the better, but don't know that their work is valuable. Right. People who don't realize how valuable their work is and are under this impression that they're just lucky to be in the room. Like, I'm just so grateful to have gotten this so prestigious unpaid internship because I'm working with this professor or if I'm working with this big time organization and this is going to look so great on my resume. And at the end of the day, that's not enough. And the advocacy that needs to come from oneself is so important in shifting the conversation around internships, around conservation, quote unquote, which is also a word I want to get into with you, because I think the idea of conservation is also quite racist. The idea of wilderness being wild, quote unquote, is quite racist and colonial and imperial. And I would love to hear a little bit of your thoughts on the definition of conservation and the definition of wilderness and the racist implications of our understanding of these spaces. 
Well, I will answer this couched within the history of the American conservation movement because in previous um, conversations, I've had people be like, well, so what is it in the Kenyan context? And I'm actually still learning about those things and I wish I had the opportunity to learn about Kenyan conservation um, and the colonialist impact of the British in regards to that sphere in my classrooms. But obviously my history isn't centered to begin with. But to answer your question, um, conservation is very interesting for me in regards to the movement and how it interacts in regards to advocacy and how conservation science conceptualizes nature, wilderness, and conservation in general. So to my understanding, what I've learned in the classroom is that the language of conservation was crafted by these white founding fathers that were taught um, about in our classrooms and that are uplifted in the mission statements and in the foundations of all these big green organizations, but also just in the way that we interact with environmentalism as a whole. So you had folks like Madison Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, John Muir, Farrell, these folks um, crafted this language of conservation but did so in a manner in regards to seeing and viewing and talking about wilderness and nature as this refuge for the white race. In regards to, you know, the Industrial Revo Revolution and cities becoming this quote-unquote dirty and inhumane place where colored people were and not necessarily safe for the, the vitality of the white race. So um, many of these folks then turn to nature and this pristine wilderness as being a refuge for them to sustain the white race in a safe place. So in doing that, they conceptualized very racialized ideas of environments worth protecting for them and the white race, while also conceptualizing and not centering and even explicitly discussing urban spheres or cities or places that had a lot of non-white people, poor people, as being places not worth protecting, places that can't be nature, can't be wilderness, should not be supported, are dirty, are bad, or ugly. And in doing that, that language has now informed the way that the environmental movement operates, maybe not necessarily in the same form of explicit racism, though the environmental movement still engages in racism and having its conceptions being based in racist ideologies. But the fact of the matter is, is those racialized conceptions and, and, and the way that wilderness and nature was defined, and on top of that, defining spaces that were already being lived upon by First Nation peoples and were uh, actually used as a way to uh, remove them from that land. Um, those same definitions are the same ones that are uplifted today. They're the same ones that are centered within how you define environments, how you then define environmentalism, who is who are the people that are in environments worth protecting, which then connects to who are people worth protecting, which then informs funding. So when you see a lot of prioritization of public land protection, 
public lands are often defined as the very places that the said people said, hey, these are the places that we want to sustain the white race. These are the places where only certain people should have access to. And it's very interesting that when people talk about reckoning with the racist history, there isn't a lot of contemporary reckoning of what that means in the present and what it would mean to expand conservation outside of this exploratory way, but actually centering urban ecologies within what nature is and should be alongside these other conceptions of nature. And it's not prioritizing one over the other. It's just saying, hey, let's adopt this environmental justice idea of environments. What is the environment? The environment isn't just greenery. It's not just green space. And green space can be found anywhere. Um, but it's the places we eat, the places we sleep, the places we cry, alongside, you know, hills and places you can hike. It's all important, and it's all important because once you expand the definition to include all these things, it's, it's easier than to understand and include the people that interact there and include them within the movement itself. Yes. Well, I think that also ties nicely into what we talked about, cultural understandings of the outdoors. And when we talk about places that we've chosen to conserve, places that the founding fathers chose to conserve, I think of national parks. I love the national parks, but we also know that the vast, vast majority, I think it's three out of every four national park visitors are white people. And why is that? And why do we feel as though these spaces are still quite exclusive? I think something that's often under-discussed too is that Right, people will often rely on the historic instances of, of violence as being one that creates this generational trauma, especially in regards to Black people and how we experience the quote-unquote outdoors. However, that violence that has happened historically continues today because obviously racism is a shapeshifter. Um, and that violence continues today in regards to criminalization in the outdoors. There are countless stories. All you need to do is Google. Every summer you find a Black couple, a Black woman, a Black man, a Black child walking outdoors and being criminalized, oftentimes ending in death in regards to, I mean, you can think about this past year and folks that have been killed in cold blood for walking down a street. But this is also in regards to our national parks. There have been stories and experiences of Black families going to certain campgrounds and being driven out and told that this was not for them. It wasn't for Black people. You have stories of people calling the police on Black people experiencing green space in neighborhoods that quote unquote aren't for us. You have experiences where Myself, I'm not very comfortable doing field work in general, and I specifically shied away from courses that were heavy on field work because I knew that completing field work in rural Connecticut was not something that I wanted to do because I did not feel safe because someone could look out the windows or be driving by or walking by and wonder, what is this Black girl doing here? I don't want her here. She doesn't belong here and call the police on me. And calling the police on a Black person in this country is... For me, that's a deadly sentence right there because I'll say briefly, even myself, I've had very unfortunate and oftentimes dangerous encounters with the police. And this is our experience in this country. So 
it's it's even beyond talking about history. It's the fact that a lot of times the outdoors and wilderness is are not safe for us in the present. So that's something that has to be talked about too. Wow, that's um so heavy, but thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing your story. And just to close off, I would love to hear a little bit about where you see education and environmental education moving, because like you mentioned, ideally you will be at Oxford in the fall. And I would love to talk to you a little bit about where you hope we can continue to educate the youth on the intersectional nature of environmentalism. I think that there's a lot to be done in regards to this, the way that the environmental movement and specifically the environmental education sphere determines um, accessibility, especially for non-white students in experiencing the outdoors. Oftentimes, the conversations and the initiatives that are prioritized right now in regards to accessibility um, tend to focus on physical access in regards to the fact that it's true, national parks and accessing them and accessing even trails at popular national parks or parks in general are very, very difficult to access if you don't have a car and public transportation often doesn't go on such routes. Um, and if they do, it's, it's, it's not really a great process, right? It's not that accessible. So oftentimes a lot of that funding and the prioritization of solving this is providing that transportation is, and also say gear, a lot of gear for hiking or camping is really expensive. So you a lot of, have a lot of organizations prioritizing, making those things more accessible by making them free or lower cost or providing rental programs, right? But I think it has to go beyond that because, I mean, I just talked about safety as being a number one issue. And even in my article, in my base article, I talked about safety and the juxtaposition of the fact that a lot of people didn't know safety and field work were things that as Black scientists we have to think about. A lot of people in the field had no idea that was happening. So in regards to talking about how to make nature say national parks more accessible for young people of color you need to have educators that are cognizant of the safety factor that plays into that that may make it feel unsafe or inaccessible for kids and even their families to feel comfortable having them go in the middle of nowhere with folks that may not even know that safety is an issue then another thing that i think about a lot and um i really want to address in my research is say the way that colorism impacts the way that especially black and brown youth experience um, the outdoors and being outside in general. Because something that I have realized in making connections in my life that simply don't exist in the literature that exists is the fact that for me growing up and for a lot of other, especially um, girls of color is the fact that we're told that we spend too much time outside, we'll be less attractive, um, it, be associated with these negative things, um, and are oftentimes encouraged to spend less time outside and preserve, you know, the winter skin tone or something of that nature, right? And so when it comes to being outdoors and spending a lot of times outside in say environmental ed, outdoor recreation, 
I feel as though something that people need to talk about more is the fact that there might be this psychological barrier of growing up and being told that darker skin is less attractive, as well as the very tangible experiences of people within the same racial category of darker skin are subject to even more injustice, um, and this has been shown in various studies, may not want to get darker and may not want to participate in the very same ways as their lighter counterparts. And that's something that needs to be addressed, which also is exciting in regards to what that could mean and what addressing that could look like. That could look like including self-love frameworks and dialogues within environmental education because it's addressing the fact that oftentimes white-centric beauty ideals have an impact on how people want to experience being outside. And a lot of times people don't know that's a real thing that a lot of us have to go through and have grown up being told these things. But in order to really dismantle the barriers that exist, you have to address things like that. So for me and my education, I want to be able to bring to light these unaddressed barriers and help inform how organizations and folks can be cognizant of implementing that programmically within the way that they're supporting underrepresented people in the outdoors. Oh, wow. I truly had not made that connection of colorism and outdoor recreation. So thank you so, so much for bringing that up and for being so vulnerable. A little bit of a cliffhanger there for you. Like I mentioned on Friday, we will have the rest of this conversation as a part two addendum episode talking about beauty standards and black beauty, especially in the context of the environmental experience. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Again, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Reach out to me on Instagram at EcoChic. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It helps me out a ton, actually. So I appreciate any ratings and reviews if you have a second. And I look forward to talking to you really soon. I'll see you on Friday. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.